Hello everyone, I'm Deborah, New Narrative's Membership Engagement Manager. Thanks for tuning in to Southeast Asia Dispatches. This week's episode is all about youth power in Malaysian politics. But first, a little information about our memberships. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider signing up for a membership at newnarrative.com join. Memberships start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com donate. Your memberships and donations directly fund our work. All right, back to this week's episode. In July 2019, the Malaysian parliament passed a constitutional amendment to lower the voting age from 21 to 18. This amendment means that an estimated 8 million eligible voters will be added to the electoral roll. While many have celebrated the move to lower the voting age, critics have said that Malaysian youth are not ready for the responsibility of voting. On this week's episode, I speak to Kira Yusri from Undi 18, a youth movement that campaigned for the constitutional amendment, and Melinda Ann, a student and recent participant in Parliament Digital, a two-day simulation of parliamentary politics in Malaysia. And we talk about youth political participation in the country. Hi, Kira and Melinda. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. So I thought we could start with some introductions. Could you both introduce yourselves and share a little bit about how you've been involved with youth political participation? Uh, So hi, my name is Kira and thank you New Narrative for having me today. My journey into youth advocacy probably started when I was a Malaysian student in the United States. Um, So I was part of a Malaysian student organization over there and I think uh, for me and my co-founder, Tharma, we wanted to do a little something a little bit more than just organizing career fairs for students. Um, so that's when we started Undi 18, which was back then the a movement to lower the voting age in Malaysia from 21 to 18. Uh, we are one of the last few Southeast Asian countries to actually uh, to actually do that. So uh, since then, uh, I've returned to Malaysia and I run Undi 18 full time, where I champion youth democratic empowerment. At the same time, uh, I have a personal mission to also platform and highlight uh, voices from marginalized communities and minority uh, Malaysians, just so that you know we can have a better political discourse. Great, thank you. Um, and Melinda, what about you? Um, my experience was similar as Kira as well, but I started off as a student gender advocate when I was elected as the women's officer in Monash. Um, And then I subsequently also interned at the women's rights organizations with other young feminists where I was able to, you know, grow in that environment as as a new gender advocate. Um, In terms of specific youth advocacy, I think Undi 18 was the one that got me interested in the whole um, youth advocacy. And then I participated in Parliament Digital recently, which is probably my first actually um, solely youth-led initiative Mm -hmm. where I was part of. Yeah, Great. So maybe I'll start with you, um, Kira, because the constitutional amendment to lower the voting age was a result of campaigning by Undi 18. So how did that journey begin? How did you go from a student movement, like you said, to a constitutional amendment? Uh, okay, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's not a tiny leap. You don't just do that overnight. It was, I think, uh, uh, it was a three-year-long effort together with you know so many different organizations, collectives, and uh, and uh, politicians that also supported the journey. So I think we started by actually being very smart in how we wanted to advocate for the issue that we care about. Uh, you know, I'm, we're very lucky that it's not an issue that touches on racial sensitivity or gender sensitivity, which generally have um, 
a little bit more difficulty in terms of uh, uh, having a discussion like that in Malaysia. So I think for us, uh, you know, it's we focused a lot on how can empowering young people be beneficial to everyone, to the economy, to political parties, to uh, to different different uh, organizations and governments as well. And I think uh, that messaging uh, resonated with a lot of people, particularly politicians, because one thing that we realized is not enough to just um, rally support from the public. An issue like this needs uh, bipartisan support and a constitutional amendment in Malaysia needs two-thirds of the support in both houses. And um, for for uh, the government at that time, the Pakatan Harapan government did not even have two-thirds. So it was going to be an incredible battle. Uh, and I think we had amazing, uh, incredible support from the Ministry of Youth and Sports. But we focused a lot on the messaging itself, keeping it sort of like separate from the political drama and just focusing on how can we, uh, you know, use this opportunity to talk about uh, Malaysia's future and uh, democratic empowerment. So focusing on the positive outcomes for everybody. And also it was it was like, uh, you know, you being, being smart about how you angle your messaging. Like uh, when we were speaking to conservative political parties, we use historical examples of how, um, you know, in Islamic history, young people uh, are seen as adults the moment they hit puberty. So they could go to war and things like that. So why can't they have something as simple as uh, the right to vote? And then, of course, with uh, other politicians, we discussed uh, how young people contribute to the Malaysian economy and how big the um, uh, uh, the electoral role will look like with young people in it and that you can't ignore their voices anymore. Yeah. Right. So a variety of tactics. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to be smart about it so that different stakeholders are able to uh, resonate with your cause. Great. Um, so since then, you mentioned, you know, it started out as a campaign to have this constitutional amendment. But since then, Undi 18 has branched out into a number of initiatives that include advocating for policy change in a number of areas like gender parity in politics, environmental conservation, uh, political education. And so the latest program from Undi 18 is this collaboration with several other youth groups to host Parliament Digital, which was a two-day digital simulation of a parliamentary city. Could you share more about how this program came about and what the execution of it looked like? Yeah, so the Parliament Digital Initiative, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in translation is Digital Parliament. It is the idea that uh, young people, uh, I guess, young Malaysians who wanted to see a parliamentary sitting, but we didn't get that. Uh, and the reason that we got was because of it, that it's a pandemic, that COVID-19 is happening. But we saw examples around the world of how governments are trying their best to sit for parliament. Because with uh, you know, in a country like Malaysia, uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, our government were giving uh, was was starting to give out uh, you know uh, sti- uh, economic stimulus, welfare uh, handouts, and all of this was done purely through uh, the executive and it didn't go through parliamentary vote, it didn't go through any debate. So we don't even know whether, for example, it is stimulus too much or more importantly, is it not enough? Can the government do more? Can our politicians demand the government to do a little bit more? Um, without these debates and without these uh, discussions, um, it gives the Malaysian government a lot of power to do, um, to just, you know, 
use the pandemic as an excuse to not be held accountable. And, you know, and I'm sure you know as well, like what, what with all the political instabilities going on, it sets a very dangerous precedence. And especially for young people, when we talk about them being the future voters, what kind of example do we really want to set for them? So I guess the idea behind Parliament Digital is that, you know, I think it's a little bit of a rebellious youth mindset as well. You know, like if you say we can't do it, we're going to show that we can. Um, so I think that's a, a, a big chunk of where the idea came from. And uh, we launched the camp, we launched the application forms with no sort of like um, no funding, no idea if people were going to support it. But within 24 hours, we got almost 2000 registrations of interest. And I took that as a sign that, you know, young people are craving for a platform. And um, I'm pretty glad that, you know, Parliament Digital is a platform dedicated for that purpose. So for our non-Malaysian listeners, this was a process where young people could apply to Parliament Digital to be parliamentarians, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are 222 seats in the Malaysian Parliament. So similarly, we have 222 seats within our program as well. And we use the exact same name for all the seats, essentially simulating as much as possible to the real parliament. Uh, we got overall 6,000 registrations of interest, about almost 1,500 were direct applications to the, to become the parliamentarians themselves. Uh, we had young Malaysians from the age of 15 to 35 applying, um, all of them having different ideas, different communities, different opinions about uh, you know uh, uh, Malaysian national policy and Malaysian issues and um, you know over the two days we got about almost 50 debaters uh, discussing issues based around economic affairs as well as education issues that the participants voted themselves to discuss on uh, and uh, and at the end of the program they also voted just like in a real parliament they voted on whether they should pass or reject the motion and um and 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 yeah so in in of, of course in the simulation we couldn't pass any real laws but i think it the simulation proves that you know um you can hold a call with 200 something member of parliamentarians parliament and you can discuss you can debate so there's actually no excuse for the government to not do so right so melinda you were a participant in parliament digital and you represented the clang constituency what motivated you to take part in Parliament Digital? Okay, I think similar like many other people as well, um, after the whole Sheraton move happened, we were all very frustrated uh, because I'm also working with a civil society organization. I think we were all just really lost as to what was happening. And then, you know, after we started getting an idea of what was happening, it was time for us to, you know, see where we can move forward from there. And I think for the youth especially, we were just so tired of being ruled by old people who were just so much more absorbed in politics, more than serving actual citizens. So um, I think it was that idea of I need a platform where I want to express my opinions and and my ideas. Um, But what does that platform look like? And then um, uh, Undi18 and several other organizations um, um, announced Parliament Digital. And it seemed like a very intriguing idea because um, in my work um, with the CSOs, I do uh, a lot of parliamentary engagement, but I've never firsthand got an experience of what it is like to actually participate um, in the process itself. So this seemed like a perfect, um, perfect avenue for me to actually, you know, uh, first-hand experience what parliamentary processes look like and also, you know, um, be able to give my opinions, especially during COVID-19. 
Right. Um, so yeah, over the two days, so a two-day sitting, the digital parliament debated an economic stimulus plan specifically for youth and then the need for a COVID-19 preparedness plan for the national education system. Uh, what was the process like to arrive at these two motions? Um, so I think I can share a little bit on that. Uh, so the selection team, uh, the the motions team in Parliament Digital, we basically synthesize all the suggestions of the 222 participants in the application forms. We narrowed it down to 12, uh, sorry, eight um, sort of like uh, broad themes of education, economic, internet, uh, social issues, um, environment, and and uh, and, and etc. And I think the idea is that you know we want the the content to be in t- uh, to be driven by the participants themselves and not just us, um, you know, dictating what they should debate about because this is after all in a way quote unquote their parliament, right? So what we did was that we synthesized um, their opinions, uh, sorry, their application essays. We came up with eight rather broad motions, and the the idea is that it's broad enough that you can debate and suggest ideas to it because in our simulation, there's not going to be a government and opposition bench. Mm. Um, so it's very important that we keep the motions big enough that you can have at least 25 unique debates about it um, or else everyone's going to say the same thing and that's that's pretty boring to listen to for hours. Um, so what we did was that after we shortlisted the eight clusters, and uh, this was all done in less than 24 hours, um, we published it onto the participants chat group and they all started lobbying I guess in a way uh, and convincing each other on which issues are the most important for them and that was very interesting for me to see how quickly everyone just jumped into their roles of advocacy. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it was very dramatic, to be honest. Uh, they started immediately setting up side chats, started setting up like, I mean, I think Melinda can share a little bit more being a participant, but as an organizer, I think it shows that, you know, these particip- young people are ready to have that space and they are claiming this space um, for their own. And, uh, and, and it's very uh, heartwarming to see them pushing for issues that matter to them the most, especially among the younger ones, the ones who have never voted before, the ones who have never participated in, in policy-making programs like this before. I, I hope that, you know, they, they see this as an opportunity as a, as a opportunity to sort of like go out there and claim more spaces that's rightfully theirs. Actually, I didn't expect that would I that I would have to lobby that soon because as soon as the motions the motions were introduced, all of us were like, "Oh my God, I need to, you know, start lobbying for the motion that I want to be represented on the day itself." Um, so it was a very tense, um, uh, you know, position to be put in. But it was very interesting how everyone was very very open to to listening to opinions and. Um, you know, accepting perspectives and um, like here I said, we had, you know, separate channels where everyone was interested, like, like, for instance, I was speaking on human rights and also social issues. So there were, there was a separate group on that specific issue itself. And everyone was quick to join all the groups to actually see what the specific um, uh, ideas under each motions are going to be like. Um, But obviously, for the program itself, only two motions were selected. And I think even with that, um, we didn't see it as, um, you know, like an obstacle to, to debating or whatnot. We, we sooner or later found a way to actually present our issues with the existing, um, the motions that were selected. For instance, in uh, economics, 
um, you know, instead of being disheartened that my specific uh, motion that I had proposed during my application wasn't selected, you know, you just find a way to be able to relate that with the area of economics. Um, so that's how I uh, merged gender and the disproportionate impact on women with economics. Um, I wasn't an ex I'm not an expert on economics, and uh, honestly, this was the first time I actually did uh, that close analysis of economic plans and whatnot. That's the same for education as well. And I think it's because of this that we were able to see so much of intersectionality in terms of the issues, and that issues were seen from multiple angles. Um, so, for instance, economics, it was seen from, from the angle of uh, gender, it was seen from the angle of B40, the similar thing for education as well. It was seen from, from the angle of persons with disabilities. Uh, it was seen from food security lens. So, you know, um, because the, the two, it was only these two motions that were selected for the program itself, I think everyone found a way to be a bit more creative on pushing for the issue that they were passionate about and they, that they felt was important and needed to be highlighted. I think what was very interesting in that uh, discussions, I managed to sit in on a few of them. There were just so many and, and uh, you know, all of us were still doing this while balancing a full-time job. Mm. Um, I think one of the calls that we're discussing about internet and education, I think this was a very, very big point for yeah. um, the young young Malaysians, especially the, the Borneo block. So they have they were raising, you know, again and again, uh, uh, stories and, and, and uh, uh, issues where, you know, young Sarawakians, young Sabahans could not access learning uh, because of the lack of devices or the lack of internet reach. And, and then, you know, and then you, they could relate with the B40 participants who are from the Semenanjung or the peninsula where, you know, you still have urban poor families who can't afford devices um, uh, to, to ensure uh, distance learning. So kids, these kids were, um, you know, bringing up facts and statistics and numbers to prove their point. And I think um, even though the motion of internet did not win the top two, it came very, very close with a mere two votes. And mm. I think uh, even in the in the actual debates themselves, when it was about education, I think almost all the Borneo participants spoke up and spoke earnestly about how, um, how dire the issue is in their constituency. So I think that's extremely valuable because for the first time, we're seeing a parliament where um, um, participants or, or politicians are not um, governed by party lines or party, um, like they're not, they don't have to kowtow, you know, to what is the party line, you know, you don't have to worry about party whip or being punished for speaking up. Everyone is genuinely representing their yeah. community, their families, their friends. And I think that was just very refreshing to see. And I hope that, you know, um, actual MPs who, who, who might watch it, uh, you know, realize that um, being a politician is not just representing your party, but you're also representing your constituency. Well, that brings me to this point. You know, I mean, often you hear in Malaysia that, oh, the youth are not ready for political participation. And generally, Malaysian students aren't encouraged to talk about politics in school. And then at the very recent, um, at the real parliamentary sitting, we had Said Sadiq, who was the youngest cabinet minister in Asia when he was voted in in 2018 and was uh, the youth and sports minister under the previous administration. He was heckled by older and more senior ministers during our most recent parliamentary proceedings. Do you think that senior politicians in Malaysia are ready to work alongside their younger counterparts? Do you think that that behavior is indicative of the environment young politicians might have to deal with here? 
I think um, that is a reality that young Malaysians have to put up with until we have made a significant impact in Malaysian politics. So what I what I mean by that is that um, currently I don't I think many young Malaysians are very concerned about joining political parties and I don't blame yeah. them. Right, we have been mm. uh, we have been governed by the University University Colleges Act in Malaysia, which prevents the participation political participation of university students, and you're missing out. You know, on like you know hundreds and thousands of Malaysian students who are at their prime. Uh, you know, when else are you gonna have time to debate policies if not university? You know, like you don't you don't have time to talk about human rights at, at a workplace in a corporate job if you are earning you no know, minimum wage and you have to struggle putting um, food on the table. It's 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 not in Malaysia, right? It's not seen as a, as a bread and butter issue. But mm-hmm. in university, you have that safe space. You have that um, freedom to be. You should be have be able to have that freedom to debate and discuss. And Malaysian, you know, Malaysian youth have been have not been exposed to that environment for so many years uh, since uh, 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 Aku was uh, came about under Tun Mahathir. So I think unless we actively begin to create and cultivate an environment where young Malaysians can start from even at school to discuss politics and policies, I'm concerned that this environment where you know YB Said Sadiq can be heckled just like that in Parliament is still going to keep continuing in Malaysia. If I may add, I think this is also where um, local governance can come into play. I mean, of course, right now, our lo- we don't have a local council elections. But yep. I, I think that's why it's important to have a local council election, because it's the perfect place for someone young to start off, you know, it's grassroots. You yep. are directly, you are directly involved with the communities that you live in and you want to represent. And of course, with local council elections, there would also be accountability. And I think with political participation as well, um, I think I define it a bit more broader instead of just being elected representatives, is how you participate in the political system itself. So it can be something as simple as, you know, uh, engaging in a youth collective parliamentary engagement. You know, you just get together youth and, you know, find ways to get in touch with your MPs or things like that. Or it can be something as simple as interning with an MP. I had the privilege of doing so. And, you know, I was able to get a firsthand view of how a constituency is managed. And I think when we're talking about political participation, it's about, you know, having avenues where youth can also build their capacity so when they're actually truly ready to be elected representatives, they have an idea of how it works and they're equipped with the resources they need. I I think it's not wrong for me to actually broadly define uh, political participation um, instead of just like, you know, uh, narrowing it down to just being elected representatives. Yeah, and no, maybe Kira has something to add to that. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. I I mean, for Undi 18, we are also trying to campaign hard for local government elections under mm. our campaign called Undi Saksama. So I think um, if anyone's interested, you can check it out. But overall, you know, I actually think political participation is definitely beyond just joining political parties, although that is an important concrete step yeah. that people should consider as well. I yeah. think for me, I personally see political participation starting as small as school elections, right? Mm. Would schools be able to hold student council elections? Um, you know, growing up, you have the idea that uh, the, the class monitor or ketua kelas is only appointed by the teacher, um, you know, or being head prefect or being head student in a school. You all, it's all appointed by the by teachers, by administration. You don't you and it's such a you miss out on a golden opportunity to engage young people on their basic. 
uh, fundamentals of democracy like uh, voting, uh, yeah. uh, campaigning, or even public speaking, right? Like we don't allow that space uh, uh, for Malaysians even at a school at a school level. So I am personally an advocate of like how can we look at um, system change and culture change most importantly overall when it comes to reducing the barriers for um, young Malaysians to be politically active. Uh, and um, although I know there are many different uh, solutions being thrown out there, um, I don't know if we're going to discuss it in this podcast, but I know there are some other alternatives being discussed about, but I personally uh, stand by that you need to also look at a long-term uh, larger cultural shift to push, to, to, to advocate towards when it comes to um, youth political participation. Yeah, I think you're both right. The emphasis in Malaysia is often on um elections and it's on political parties as a way to be an active political citizen when actually as you both point out there's lots of different ways but you know at the same time I think partly because of the success of Parliament Digital and maybe kind of the disillusionment in our current elected representatives um, there was I saw on social media this call for more young people to run for parliamentary and state seats in the next election, independent of existing parties. So what what do you think is the feasibility of this? I think uh, independent candidates need to have an incredible amount of startup capital. And uh, because elections, winning elections, unfortunately, is about money. And I don't mean money by you need to bribe people to win, but you need money to run campaigns. You need startup capital mm. to put down the deposit. You need money to, you know, go out and engage the people. Um, and my question to um, young people who are roaring to go and run for elections, that are you ready for that? Are you ready to fundraise? Are you ready to, you know, put yourself out there to the point where, um, you know, you might lose everything. So I don't want to sound like I'm discouraging it because I think uh, any form of participation is, is great. But I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of young Malaysians don't seem to uh, understand the gravity of running as an independent. And my concern is that uh, it will deter more young Malaysians to join. So for example, um, is, run, is, getting, is, is it a solution to get someone who is young and rich to run because they can afford to lose the deposit or is it more productive to to advocate for removing the deposit uh, for young candidates right because you want to uh, advocate you want to make it more diverse so i know there are some campaigns that are trying to advocate for removing the the deposit for women or uh, youth candidates so that you can um you know uh en- encourage a more level playing field so is this something that we can consider instead but i think um speaking from experience and seeing what's happening i think for young independent candidates most of the time uh the 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 seat that you might want to run is is run in is urban seats and in urban seats there there you'll be in um i guess contesting against um parties that are supposedly progressive like the pakatan harapan um politicians so the question is, if your are your ideals vastly different from them, that you will be, have a chance to win, and um, you know, or would it might would it mean like you know you're you're putting it uh you're you're putting it into like a three or four corner fight, and then you allow the conservative parties to win. So I think these are serious questions that we need to contemplate when mm-hmm. we are looking at um in uh getting independent candidates to run in for the next general election. 
especially in the context of a snap election. Right. Yeah. And just for some context for people outside of Malaysia, it it costs um ten thousand ringgit to put down an election deposit, which is about um three thousand US dollars, a little less than three thousand US dollars. I'm not sure of the exact math, but yeah, the election deposit Kira was talking about is a ten thousand ringgit. Um, yeah, sorry, Melinda, please. Yeah, no, uh, just adding on to what Kira said. Um, of course, I'm also all for. Um, a youth movement in elections or, you know, in the next general election, we really want to see a change in the political landscape and the representation in parliament itself. But I think I have two points to add. Firstly, it's what exactly is the individual going into this, um, you know, area of politics for? Is it for actually bringing about a change or is it just because of politics? Because I think we're just really tired of... um, you know, seeing older politicians um, being a part of politics just for the politics, right? Um, we find very limited or very or just a handful of people who these days we can actually trust in carrying out their position as an elected representatives because they truly care for policies and law. Um, so I think it's whoever the people in politics in general need to constantly remind themselves and hold themselves accountable as to why you really want to do this. Uh, Like for me as well, Parliament Digital was just like dipping my toes in to see what a parliamentary process would look like and you know what a world of politics would look like. And for now, I would say I'm not ready yet, but I would continue to do what I can in whatever capacity in my role as an activist in the civil society organization. And if someone else has the energy to, you know, take that one step forward and do it in the actual political world, then kudos to them. But again, I think we need to, you know, practice responsible activism, whether you're doing it in the activism circle or in politics. So what are you doing it for, right? That's one major important thing that we need to remind ourselves at every point in being an rep- elected representative. And I think secondly, I um, obviously youth representation is important, but because of my identity as an intersectional feminist as well, I think it goes beyond just that. I think it's also making sure that there are multiple identities being reflected uh, or represented. Are there members of the marginalized communities there? Are there members of you know, uh, ethnic minorities of the indigenous community, of persons with disabilities or of people from the lower socioeconomic class. I think we're so tired. I mean, I am personally tired of seeing elitist activism or or elitist, um, you know, uh, power play in politics. So I think these two points are very important that I really want to emphasize at this point. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you brought up, you know, elitist politics, elitist activism, and and going back to what Kira said, um, sometimes, unfortunately, politics and and the ability to enter politics comes down to who can afford it, right? Who can afford to put up a deposit? um, Who can run a campaign and pay for for a campaign? Actually, Um, I mean, the question is, right, who can afford to lose half a million ringgit when it comes to campaigning, Right. Because let's say you you campaign and you lose, you're not just losing your deposit, right? You're losing uh, the amount of money you put into paying your campaign managers, uh, you know, marketing costs and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we're sort of coming to this, but so money is definitely one barrier that might, you know, challenge some Malaysian youth who want to 
participate politically. But yeah, what are some other barriers that Malaysian youth face in terms of political participation? I well beyond just um the the financial aspect, there's also the social aspect, right? Of being uh seen as being an attention seeker or mm. being seen as where um or even a joke. I mean, we we see the a manifestation of that through YB Said Sadiq's heckling, um in in Parliament. And uh you know, I think especially when it comes to young people, you really have to look at you know besides um. Uh, the differences that uh, the treat- in treatment of how of young men and young women get when they want to become politically active, um, young young men are often being hailed as like you know generational heroes, the country's future, etc. etc. And when young women want to join politics, um, either they get inappropriately uh, flirted with, you know, uh, you get unsolicited flirting, or you mm. might uh, a social stigma where um, you know they'll be like, oh well, why 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 bother? Um, you know, or all you do is talk about women's issues, like talk about anything else. I, I've had that being said to me before. I'm not sure about Melinda, but you know, like I think, uh, very, yeah, and I know many other young women who face the same thing. And we're not even directly in politics, right? We're just dipping our toes in this, um, in this environment. So I think the the it's some and it's something that you can't really quantify with data because you know it's not money. It's not um. It's not. It's not something you can see. Um, on paper, it but was it can quite, really uh, affect. Sorry, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, just adding to what Kira said. Um, so recently, there was an incident in Parliament where uh, a woman um, of Indian ethnicity, a member of Parliament, was actually um, it, there. Was another MP that threw racial and sexist slurs at her, and um, there was a whole chaos in Parliament because they asked him to withdraw this, the the comment. Um, but as much as he did apologize, he did keep justifying himself, saying that the reason why he said those things were were completely different from his intentions. But clearly, we all understand that the reason why it was thrown at her was because she was part of an ethnic minority, and secondly, was because she was a woman. Um, so, and it was seen very clearly how, although so uh, the MP's name was YB Kasturi, although she did take the issue very seriously, and you know she kept talking about it in media, um, people didn't think it was a big issue at all. People were saying how she was trying to um, make a petty issue into such a big thing, and that it was a waste of time and uh, people's money, and that she should focus on national issues. But people don't see this as a major barrier as to why. Uh, not only youth, but I think specifically young women are actually reluctant. Um, and this is one of the main reasons why there's an unequal status of women in the public space as well. You know, we don't even have the Sexual Harassment Act passed yet. And, you know, if elected representatives don't get that protection, how can regular citizens ensure that, you know, protection is ensured? Um, so, yeah, I just quickly remembered of that situation uh, that happened in Parliament just to add up to what Kira said. Um, yeah, and, and what about youth who are maybe not interested in politics? You know, that's, that also exists, right? And, and partly because young people are told, like, oh, you shouldn't talk about politics in school. So some of them become uninterested. How, how can we encourage those who aren't yet excited or hungry for an opportunity to participate in politics? How do we encourage that? I think we should use every opportunity we have to relate what's happening around us to um, politics and policy making. 
So I occasionally run workshops with uh, children, Malaysian children, on um, civic engagement. And I, I don't start off by saying, okay, you must care about politics, you must care about policies, you must learn the data and the stats. I ask simple questions like, why is why do you have to wear black shoes to school? Do you know why? Mm-hmm. Do you know why certain states have um, weekends on Friday and Saturday instead of Saturday and Sunday? Do you know why uh, you know sometimes you have uh, math and science in English and sometimes you don't? Uh, you know, and then you get this kids questioning uh, uh, you know, what's happening to them, you get them thinking out loud, you get them uh, this is how I think uh, you can tempt uh, Malaysian youth who may not be aware uh, into conversations and into the difficult conversations. I sincerely believe that, you know, as people who are aware, like, you know, like, like you, me, um, should start having this or should prompt these difficult conversations, especially with uh, teenagers and children, for them to pique their interests uh, into what's happening around them and you know and what's happening around them is definitely all based on uh, national policies that were crafted without consulting them you know so when kids get have to change their shoes from black to white or white to black um, they don't ask if the kids actually can afford it you know nobody asks if the kids actually have time to buy new shoes and then you know when kids realize that they're not consulted I think then that that curiosity will begin and slowly we can cultivate it into uh, you know, political literacy and political awareness. Right, so connecting the everyday to the political. Yeah. What do you think needs to change in terms of explicitly political education in schools, especially as we'll see a large number of young voters join the electoral rolls in the near future? Huh. Um, so much needs to be changed. Uh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I think we need to start looking at our existing syllabus and our existing... Um, uh, 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 you know, education system, like, you know, how do we even teach Malaysian history? How do we incorporate uh, national values or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, or even values overall into our existing curriculum? You know, how we teach civic or how we teach history is, is so, um, it's so watered down that, uh, you know, you, you end up memorizing, focusing on memorizing mm-hmm. dates, times, rather than the spirit of, um, you know, of national history so I think it needs to start from there and I, I really hope to see more educators raising these issues and not just from the activists or CSO circles I think more Malaysian teachers need to start speaking up about education reforms um, without fear although I know it's a huge ask but it needs to start from within it needs to start from the people who are directly affected in the system and that's students and teachers. Um, what are your hopes for the future of youth political participation? I hope that we can begin uh, uh, by speaking to people younger than us. Because I know I'm still in the youth category, but I work mm. with kids as young as 10, 11 years old. And I want to be able to speak to them, getting them to uh, think about what's around them, what's surrounding them. Because I think this is the most important step that um, as adults, we don't consider when we speak to children. I think we still take for granted um uh, how serious their future is if they are not politically literate. So I hope that you know more young adults, uh, you know, uh, and more uh, more young Malaysians realize that um, how dire the situation can be, and it's not enough for just us ourselves to be educated about it. We have to consciously and actively work towards educating the younger generation uh, about political literacy. Yeah, um, and I think I have to also add that. For me personally, if you ask me, I think I would want to see youth political participation 
uh, that is very issue based and it's not dictated by party politics. And uh, I think I, I envisioned that for the larger, you know, political situation in Malaysia itself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's our political landscape is long overdue for a real shakeup, like a real um, systemic shakeup. And um, as you said, maybe returning to the issues rather than some of the more um, perhaps power-based interests. Um, well, that's it from me. Thank you both so much for taking the time to speak to me. I think it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Our thanks to Kira and Melinda for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Next week, be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast series on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. This is Deborah. Wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Jumpa lagi!